Thank you so much, Kristen, for taking the time and joining me on the show today. Been looking forward to this conversation for a while as I start to get some more guests on from uh, the aging and longevity space, which is a core motivation of actually why I started the podcast in the first place. Uh, you are running one of the most exciting companies in the space, I think, uh, BioAge Labs, basically a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong after this, but like somewhat of an AI drug discovery platform focused on uh, the pathways to aging and what we can do to increase human health span as well as lifespan. Um, so I think for, for those people who don't know you, the best place to get started would just be to kind of tell your story a little bit from as early as you're really willing to start to uh, where you are today. And then later we can uh, introduce the company and, and dig into all this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on today. It's fun to be here. Um, so yeah, I can tell you a little bit about my background. I've always wanted to, to work on aging, actually. I, I think I, I first got interested in this space uh, in high school, you know, and uh, was following the developments rapidly. And it seemed to me such an important problem um, for society to solve. Uh, you know, I think right now in the US, the average lifespan is in the low 80s, but the average health span is in the low 60s, right? So most people spend 20 years with one or more chronic diseases of aging. And, uh, and it's, not, it's not a fun time. Uh, it's also very expensive uh, to the healthcare system as we all get older. Um, so I didn't, you know, in college, I, I worked on math and physics because I, I really liked those areas. And I was watching um, developments in the longevity space and not as much was happening as I would have liked. <laughs> so it's one of those, I would say, I guess, really high leverage fields. You know, I, I, I decided to get personally involved. I um, did my PhD in bioinformatics applied to aging biology uh, at the University of Toronto. I'm a Canadian by background and did some of my first work there, um, really digging into um, molecular data on aging biology, um, building biomarkers of aging in different animals um, from humans to mice to invertebrates and um, repurposing drugs in that context as well. And I'll say too, right? Like I've always been most interested in studying how humans age, because uh, that's of course gonna be the most translational to finding therapies that are really important to, to helping people. Um, so I came after my PhD to, to Stanford to do a postdoc. Uh, I was really excited to get my hands on some really cool genome sequence data from humans who live to be older than, older than 100 or 110, right? Um, and was looking for genetic variants that might predispose you to longer life. And I think that's really the low hanging fruit of the aging space, I guess, right? Like, let's copy what already works. There already are families of people living a hundred plus or longer. Um, let's find out what's different about them. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing your story from, uh, starting with the interest in high school out of curiosity. Do you remember what it was that sort of sparked this interest in the first place? Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, I've always been an avid sci-fi reader, so it probably naturally fell out of, you know, reading too much Greg Egan and everything else in that space, also to frontier science and tech. Right. And so there's been, you know, very minimal sort of like, obviously the, the concept of slowing or reversing aging for basically all of humanity has been like somewhat intriguing to various degrees, but never did we actually think that we could make a difference in it, at least not in like the maximum, you know, we've seen over the last um, century plus how we could uh, extend like the average lifespan by going after child morbidity and infectious diseases and things like that. But the thought of extending the maximum has sort of been, like you said, sci-fi. Um, but more recently, you know, first, I think 
uh, with certain experiments in mice and uh, maybe even humans, I'm not sure, related to uh, caloric restriction uh, in the earlier part of the last century. And then uh, most notably, like Cynthia Kenyon's research, seeing that you could kind of tweak one gene in, in C. elegans, which is basically worms, and extend their lifespan massively, uh, sort of added some fuel to the space. So where did that kind of intertwine with with your interest? And what do you think generally like that um, that major milestone sort of did for the space in terms of uh, just sort of helping people to believe that this was something that we could actually go and, and actually solve? Well, that, that's a great perspective. And, and I agree completely with that kind of narrative, right? I, the important thing to, for people outside the field to know is that aging is a new science, right? It's still, you know, not that common for it to be people in academia that focus on aging. There are just starting to be a few biotechs taking aging derived drugs to the clinic. And that's because everything is, is very recent. And aging science was really considered kind of intractable until, um, like you said, the work of Cynthia Kenyon in the, in the early 1990s, people thought that, you know, there are so many different things that go wrong as you get older. How can there possibly be a simple fix, right? It'll just be like a band-aid and it won't actually extend lifespan um, by very much. And then of course, uh, Cynthia Kenyon's work with DAF and you know Gary Revkin as well, Tom Hughes, showed that you could delete one gene from a worm and double its lifespan. And I think that um, shocked everybody, right? Like that's a huge effect size from a really tiny manipulation. Um, and that sort of made the field more, more academically respectable. This was something that you could study with genetics, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of toolkits, especially to study, um, you know, the effects of knocking down a gene in, in an invertebrate species like a worm or a fly or yeast. So really in the 1990s, a lot of biologists entered the field of aging and mapped out, you know, for the whole genome, like what are the things that you can change that will influence the rate of aging um, in these invertebrate species. And the real lesson there, I think, is that lots of things work. <laughs> so there are several hundred different, you know, genetic manipulations you can make to invertebrates that will significantly extend their lifespan. And, you know, the lesson for translation, I don't think it's going to be those exact same genes and pathways that matter for humans. But I do think that the, the broader lesson of there are gonna be a lot of things that work. You know, We are not optimized for living long. There's probably a lot of different mechanisms you can tweak that will have significant effect on, on life and health. And, and then just to you know go forward into the future, right? So it's really only in the 2000s when you start to see these very well replicated, you know, in you know, outbred, more genetically diverse mouse strains, these, these things that could make mice live longer. And, and I'm thinking too of the first therapeutic, which really had a robust effect, which is rapamycin. So not that long ago, right? Um, and, and part of the reason for that is that it is really a lot harder to do like high throughput drug screening in mice to see if they live longer because now, you know, you're looking at four year experiments. <laughs> Whereas back when you're looking at, you know, worm lifespan that you can see that, you know, life extension over the period of a month. Uh, so it's, so where I feel we are today is that frankly, not many drugs or genes have been screened in mice because it takes too long, just a few dozen. And the NIA um, interventions testing program has really been taking the lead here. Uh, but of course, you know, even aside from mice, what matters the most for our aging is, is how humans age. And we're, we're very different from mice. Mice die almost exclusively from cancer in the lab. Uh, that's, that's not true for us at all, right? Like heart disease is, is the number one killer. And of course there's also Alzheimer's, which mice don't get, you know, et cetera, right? So, um, so part of the vision behind bioage is, is mapping out really how, how humans are aging. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, like I said, the study and like you mentioned, the study that focused on C. elegans and, and worms, like that's, we, we were able to show that you can have multitudes longer lifespan by, you know, these various modifications. Uh, so it's sort of been natural. And this is the way drugs work generally, I think, uh, is that, you know, you know, you sort of start with animals and whether it's worms or mice or monkeys or whatever it is, um, you sort of progress from there and then get it to humans. But to your point, not everything translates perfectly. And so I think what seems from the outside looking in to me to be one of the unique approaches of BioAge is that you guys are, are going in human first and trying to get that first 10 or 20%, whatever it might be, 30% uh, extension in health span and lifespan. And then that sort of buys us more time to go from there. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with like Aubrey de Grey's concept of like the longevity escape velocity, but it seems to me that this could be like a very feasible sort of step one in something like that. And not to say that it's inevitable or going to happen necessarily, but um, if you did envision a future in which humans could live like vastly longer than we do now in a healthy way, it would seem, you know, very logical that like the first innovations would be sort of from humans in terms of like where they're discovered, like you guys are focused on and then, you know, applied to humans and we get that extra 10, 20, 30 years of life that then enabled us to go out in this very new field, like you pointed out and, and find the next great innovation to sort of rewind the cycle from there. Yeah, I think that's a good characterization. I think that what we're focused on at BioAge is, is this low hanging fruit, right? We're, we're, we're copying what already works. We're trying to look at, you know, we're comparing the average human uh, at a molecular level to those people who are living, you know, 90 plus and in good health. Um, I still remember, you know, we were one of the, the genomes we looked at um, back in my postdoc was uh, from, from Lila Denmark, who uh, lived to be over 110 and was still a practicing pediatrician at age 104, right? Um, so that's, that's possible, right? Without, you know, too dramatic a departure. <laughs> um, so we really want to find the pathways that are different in those people and, and then drug them. And, and yeah, I feel like it's not going to be that hard. There will be um, therapies that are discovered in the near term that could add, you know, 20 years of healthy life. So when you went and started the company, uh, it was not like a common thing and it's still not a common thing, but it was even less common back then to go and start a company focused on extending health span and lifespan, broadly called like an aging company. Um, what sort of gave you the conviction to go and do that in the very early days when this was just not a thing to do and sort of take that risk for, um, you know, presumably the reward of, of being one of the first to make a real difference? Yeah, so I'd always wanted to develop therapies that would actually help help aging, you know, in people. And I, you know, realized over time that that doesn't really happen in academia, right? Like, like there's lots of really awesome science that gets done in academia, but that next translational step um, has to happen outside. And then, as you said, right? I mean, part of the reason um, I started a company was because there weren't a lot of other ones out there, right? And it was really sort of conviction in the value of this big experiment that we were going to run. And, and the, the big sort of experiment that BioAge is based on is, you know, because humans age on the scale of decades, we really need molecular data that span decades in order to figure out how people age. And, um, you know, you could go and do that today. You could start collecting, you know, biobank samples from people and then wait 50 years for them to die. <laughs> so that's not practical, right? But, but an important, um, you know, an important insight for starting the company is that there are a few biobanks out there that started collecting blood samples from healthy middle-aged people 50 years ago. 
and then track those individuals longitudinally uh, for the rest of their lives. So they have, you know, blood samples that have been banked for decades, uh, connected to really rich, detailed health records on how long each of those individuals lived, um, what diseases they got when they were older, uh, but also their health span. So every time someone would come back to, for a, another exam at the biobank, they'd look at their walking speed, their grip strength, their, their cognitive function, right? And, and the basic idea behind what we're doing at BioAge is to look at you know, these samples and these people when they're 50, 60 years old and say, and enumerate all the molecules in those samples, right? And this is something that you couldn't do you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have the technologies, right? But now we can go into a blood sample and you know, we, can, we can measure 5,000 proteins, we can measure 7,000, sorry, several thousand metabolites, we can measure um, tens of thousands of RNA transcripts and make a big list of all the molecules. And then ask the question, like, what's different, you know, in the molecular profile of someone, you know, 50, 60 years old who goes on to live 90 plus versus the rest of us? And what's that sort of map of differences? And that always seemed to me like a really valuable endeavor. And that was sort of the first project of the company. So like, if you went out and set out today to give ourselves like the best chance of finding some great discoveries 50 years from now, to the point that you sort of brought up, you would um, start tracking people's health in a variety of ways, including blood samples and things like that. And you'd sort of be able to design what you wanted to keep track of over the, the course of the next 50 years. It sounds like you sort of solved the timing problem by, by going back and having these existing blood banks that you can use the data from. Is there anything though, that's sort of missing from, you know, what you would have liked to have been tracked? Or is it really a, uh, like a fully comprehensive sample that enables you guys to do the work that you would ideally like to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in the ideal scenario, you would do some things differently, right? Like we'd strap Fitbits on them, et cetera. You'd have continuous data. I mean, those didn't exist at the time. And similarly too, right? Like we're looking at the blood, which is a great, like we know there are things in blood that can modify aging. So again, I think this is low hanging fruit, but it's not like we have brain tissue samples or, you know, that said, you, you can't really collect those from healthy people either. <laughs> so that's the scientific ideal data set um, has things which are, I guess, not practical. Um, uh, you know, in terms of actually profiling healthy people and, and starting several decades ago. Um, so certainly, like, I think there's going to be a bunch of stuff we discover from the blood, but there's also going to be important aging pathways discover elsewhere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny, I guess we would have to uh, send a Fitbit back in time and, and do some pretty advanced things if we wanted to change some of the <laughs> data. So uh, it sounds like you have a, a pretty good set for for what you're looking to do. Um, and, and I know, you know, the the targeting of uh, different elements within blood is not like the only pathway within aging that people are thinking about. How was that, you know, how did that become the pathway that you were most interested in targeting? Well, partly that's because where, where the data are, but, but, but partly also to, um, well, I, I guess there's a, there's a couple of different reasons. So one is that I think immune aging is really key to a lots of different types of aging. Um, your immune system goes everywhere. Your immune system declines substantially as you get older and also influences things like Alzheimer's, like cancer, like heart disease. So the, the, the things in your in, blood goes everywhere, right? So, so really we're getting a view of the immune system over time and how that correlates with longevity. And I think there's a lot of stuff there. Um, I would say too that from interventional studies in mammals, blood is one of those um, systems where we are pretty confident there are interventions that have substantial effect on lifespan from the work on parabiosis or blood exchange and some, from some of the positive factors that have been identified in blood. And those are sort of two different windows on, on why the blood is interesting. 
Right. And so when, when you started out with this company, was this something where like you found the blood banks and realized like this was the way to go and it sort of inspired you to start a company or you were like, I need to do something in this space. What's the best thing to do? And then you went out and sort of determined this to be that, if that, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. It, it was that particular experiment of looking at trying to find like molecular predictors of mortality that you could see at midlife, that you could see when people were still healthy. Um, and, and, you know, that as a way of ID identifying important targets for aging. So it was really that particular experiment, which I guess had been sort of percolating for a couple of years uh, in my head. Great. So um, let, let's zoom out like a little bit and, and people who have listened to other aging related episodes of the podcast will sort of be familiar with, with some other frameworks, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective. You know, it seems obvious to a lot of people that uh, if we could live longer and healthier lives, we would want to do so. But some people don't actually realize that, you know, the attention of the world and the funding of the world and various institutions and governments and, and alike don't really operate as if solving aging is uh, either something that would be good to do or achievable because there's just no money pouring into the space. And so um, I guess what is your sort of elevator pitch on why aging deserves funding, you know, like cancer and like some of these other areas where we're spending, you know, billions and billions of dollars a year? I think something of like like three quarters of the annual U.S. healthcare spending goes to chronic diseases in the elderly. So this is an, an immense number, right? And and again, I think that I'm part of it too. So th there's a couple different perspectives, right? So, so one is that a lot of diseases of older people are, I would say, neglected. Like if older people have reduced physical function, et cetera, that's considered like a normal part of aging, and those have not been considered treatable diseases in the past. And there are some great examples too, right? Where something started out that way and is now considered a disease, like osteoporosis is a great example. Uh, 20 years ago, that was not considered a disease. It was considered part of getting old. Um, and now there are you know, billion dollar markets established by the, the first drugs. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of conditions of the elderly. Um, but beyond that too, I think that there is growing appreciation that aging can give you a window onto really important diseases that you know, have received a lot of funding, things like Alzheimer's disease, like cancer, heart disease. Like Alzheimer's you know, doesn't happen to 20 year olds, right? It happens to 80 year olds. And yet often when it's studied, um, it's studied in these mouse models where they you know, genetically break a young animal to sort of have some Alzheimer's like phenotypes in its head. Um, and treat that like a model, but those are not predictive at all. Uh, and the drugs discovered in those models are, are not working in the clinic. So I think there's growing appreciation for, you know, looking at, at these diseases all through the lens of aging. Right. And so what your company has sort of set out to do is to see, you know, not what works in mice, like we talked about, but what works in humans. And you've got this very unique, like AI driven model that's, uh, you know, basically pointed at this pretty pr proprietary, it seems, set of data spanning back like 50 years. What is sort of like step one, two, and three, or, or however you sort of think about it in your head of going from, okay, we have like a very novel approach to discovering these drugs to, okay, we're actually out there now with approved drugs, uh, you know, extending human health span. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, this map is where our science comes from, right? So we have a lot of pathways that that impact aging mapped out from our human data. And the thing is, right, some of those pathways are completely novel um, and other ones, there's a lot known about them already. And so as a company, we just decided to, to focus first on those 
best known pathways. Uh, known to the extent that there are already drugs that have been, you know, in phase one studies in humans. Um, so they're de-risked in the sense that we know that, you know, you can influence this pathway in, in humans, you know that it's safe to influence this pathway in humans, there, and even there exists a molecule out there that like hits the target. And we, we made that very intentional decision because those drugs and those pathways are the closest to translation. Again, like low-hanging fruit first is a recurring theme here. <laughs> so, so basically, and you know, this map that we built is sort of data, data-driven, data first. Um, and the, the interesting lesson, right, is that there are a lot of molecules that have been in clinical development that have a very strong signal um, in our longevity map. And we're focused first on bringing those in. Um, so just in the last two, uh, last year, uh, BioAge brought in its first phase two phase two ready programs, each of them targeting different pathways that are important for longevity. Um, and then of course, right, there's the other hard question, which is how do you develop a drug for longevity, right? You don't want to do uh, a 50 year, 50 year clinical trial looking at lifespan as the readout. Um, and I think it's important to be sort of ruthlessly practical here, you know, like we want to it's already hard to sort of be developing something for aging, which is a new space. So you really want to like de-risk at every step because uh, you can always be surprised in the clinic. So the way that we're approaching clinical development at BioAge is we're bringing in drugs where we think there's ultimately the potential for ideally like chronic dosing in a healthier elderly population uh, for a huge indication with, with you know, huge unmet needs. It's an aging indication, but along the way, there is what is known as a, a model clinical indication, like a first indication that's very practical, practical in terms of you know, the regulatory endpoints with the FDA, uh, the payer strategy, practical in terms of the number of people uh, you have to look at in your clinical trial to see a signal that gets you more confident about the mechanism that also teaches you about aging. Um, so both of our programs, um, that's kind of our roadmap. And again, there's drugs that you can look at, like I, th I think statins in a way are a good example of like, kind of an aging drug, right? Like if you're over 40 and you have a couple of risk factors, your doctor will prescribe statins. But that's not how they were developed in the clinic. They were initially developed for a very narrow focused orphan disease, uh, hypercholesterolemia, and then the label was expanded over time. Um, and that's a similar kind of approach, which is sort of the most, the most practical one, I think, for aging drug development uh, that we have right now. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, a couple of drugs that you've been able to bring to the clinic already. I understand one was like a very recent announcement, uh, the BGE-117, I think. That's right. Uh, and then there was another one, which I'm not sure what stage that's in exactly, but I think that was previously announced. Um, can you introduce these drugs and sort of how you came to them first and what you expect from them through the trials? Yeah, definitely. So the first drug induces hypoxia signaling. Um, so this is sort of, it's a transcript. So it turns on this transcription factor in your cells that activates over 200 different genes. And it's the same kind of program that gets activated by, by low oxygen levels. So for example, if you go live at high altitude, this pathway will get turned on. Um, and we initially got excited about this hypoxia pathway um, because of a very strong signal in our human cohort data. So we saw that over time in our, in our human cohorts, your hypoxia pathway levels decline as you get older. And furthermore, if you look at people who are the same age, like if you have higher hypoxia activity relative to other people your age, you're more likely to live longer, uh, live healthier longer uh, in terms of being less frail, better cognitive function, et cetera. So that was sort of the initial signal that got us really excited about, um, about this mechanism. And there are drugs out there that, you know, it's a pill, it's an oral pill that you can take. 
and, uh, and we brought in one that had already been through phase one, uh, phase one studies uh, pretty recently and that we could advance uh, you know, immediately to a phase two aging indication. Uh, so that trial, which we just started last week, it's the very first trial that uh, BioAge has started. So very exciting time right now. Um, we're looking at aging anemia. So this is older people who have you know, impaired physical function, uh, lower hemoglobin levels, and they're gonna be taking our drug for three months. And we're gonna be looking at um, their hemoglobin levels it's because it's anemia, that that'll be the primary endpoint of the study. Uh, but also a bunch of other things which we think that um, this mechanism might be fixing. Uh, so we think it's important actually for various aspects of muscle aging and muscle healing. Uh, so we're going to be looking at a bad, you know, a really big battery of, of aging biomarkers. Um, these people will have Fitbits on <laughs> for the course of the study, not not Fitbits, but a different, you know, uh, clinical wearable, um, as well as, you know, how well they're walking, um, other sort of muscle function tests. I'm curious, is the clinical wearable something that's like available for consumers or not? It's, it's not, but it's sort of a scaled down version of a Fitbit because you're, you're giving this to sort of older people and you don't want it to have to be charged too often, things like that. So it actually has fewer features than uh, a consumer device. Yeah, I, I personally wear an, uh, an Aura ring, which I, I think is pretty cool. I just got it within like the last year. Do you, do you get involved with any of these things yourself? Oh, cool. Yeah, I just have a, you know, a Fitbit HR, so it's a bit out of date, so I, I need to upgrade. Okay, yeah, well, it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people I've found in, in the aging space, there's this tendency to like not worry too much about like what's going on, you know, in the present or like in the very near term, because people are so hopeful about what can be found uh, in the long term. So I don't know if that applies <laughs> to you, but people aren't like dying to be at the cutting edge of things. They're just like doing cutting edge science. And then in terms of their practical life, they're just sort of exercising and, and eating healthfully and things like that. Um, talking about these, these clinical trials you have ongoing, uh, it seems somewhat like, I mean, it seems like an additional obstacle to me and, and very challenging and somewhat backwards um, that the FDA, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but last time I heard uh, the FDA doesn't consider like aging a disease. And so you sort of have to find these roundabout ways to test these different drugs. Um, so it sounds like you're targeting this, this type of anemia um, but really, and you know, you, it's a, just a genuine, you know, application and everything like that, but you also are curious to see these other impacts that it could have in, in more broadly, um, potentially slowing aging or some of the, uh, the damage that occurs throughout the process of aging. Is that something where, where you have to sort of, you know, do you feel, uh, sort of compromised by this, by this issue? And is this something that the FDA can change in the near future? Um, that's actually something I don't feel is, is a huge obstacle necessarily, because, what if the FDA did consider aging to be a disease, right? And it's, it's still true today, at least, if I wanted to do a clinical trial to see if this drug was affecting aging longevity, that's a really long, really big, really expensive trial, right? So, so the way that you, know, you approach it as a biotech, like say, you know, you've got $50 million that you're gonna spend on clinical trials. Would you rather make like one big expensive bet on this sort of first drug that you bring forward and do a huge aging trial? Or would you rather do maybe bet on 10 different mechanisms in the clinic and do really efficient trials um, for other indications, right? Because you can't really do a small efficient trial. And by that, I mean not many people and not too much time for a readout for aging yet. And, and maybe in the future, that'll change because we'll have biomarkers that we really believe, you know, that can be real endpoints. But I feel like that's still a ways away. So this is sort of a you know, the, the way that we think about it, right, is that we want to test a lot of different mechanisms and get a really early peak at meaningful data. Um, 
Yeah, I, I like that perspective, sort of turning a uh, what, what I sort of laid out as an obstacle into somewhat of an opportunity and actually an advantage to be able to do these sort of high rep, uh, you know, low expense trials and, and sort of see what hits and, and go from there. Um, I saw that you brought in a uh, a veteran drug developer from a bio from a big biopharma company to sort of help overlook some of this uh, clinical trial process. Uh, what is like, you know, it's it's somewhat. I mean, it's, it's very impressive and just just intriguing to me how sort of you came from this academ academic background and have sort of married the science to technology. And now you obviously have to like be very, uh, you know, you have to do a great job actually running the business itself. How are you sort of marrying these skills? And I guess, did, did you envision yourself like when you were when you were younger sort of running a company or, or you know, how, how have these skills been to develop in parallel to your background in science? Yeah, that's a great question. It's different every year, right? <laughs> so it's, um, it's you know, BioAge was founded um, in sort of late 2015. It's been five and a half years now. And every year it's different. Like the first couple of years we were, we were data only, right? So just sort of getting the biobank data, analyzing it. And then it was a really big transition as we, you know, built our own bio labs for the first time. And in the past year, it's been making this leap to the clinic, right? Which, which is, so it's, everything new every year, which, which I love, frankly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, you really did your research. We, we brought on a really great um, chief medical officer who has really deep expertise. And I'm glad we have him on board because it's, it's so important to be creative in the clinic, right? Because again, like all these mechanisms, we think they have broad potential for an aging related disease, but we don't want to go there first. You know, I should add too, right? Like that's not even sort of necessarily special for aging. Like we also wouldn't develop a drug for diabetes as our first indication because that would just be, you know, too long, too expensive. There are lots of diseases like that. And, and uh, Paul, our CMO is, is really, really good at coming up with, um, efficient, you know, efficient and effective proof points along the way to these really big aging indications. Um, and as you know, we've learned a ton from him. And just from like a business perspective, these banks that the, the blood banks that you were able to partner with, like, is there any, can companies sort of go and do anything even close to what you guys are doing? Or are you truly sort of uh, grabbed everything that there was to grab in that sense, and are sort of applying your AI, which I assume improves and, and you know, develops over time as well. And sort of have like a very unique path that you guys are taking. And of course, other companies can take other approaches to longevity. And I, I imagine people in the space are, are all rooting each other on because it's a very, you know, human problem to solve. But, um, but I'm just curious from like a business perspective, can anyone else sort of go that route? Yeah, we have exclusive relationships and, and sort of very restricted uses around the data that we're generating on these samples. So, so it's not straightforward for anyone to go out and use um, the same biobanks where we have relationships. And there's not many of them out there as well because not a lot of people were biobanking 50 years ago and so, you know, storing samples, you know. But but yeah, just to add to your point, right? Like there aren't a lot of, there's just a few companies in the longevity space right now. And, and the way that I think of longevity is that it's like wide open. Like there's a lot of targets that are gonna work. Um, and so everyone is um, very supportive of each other. Yeah, it's a nice space to be in. So where are we now from your perspective? Like it's it's very recently sort of gained this momentum, but who's to say, like the, the example that I like to use is um, people were trying to like figure out how to fly, how, how we humans could fly, not, you know, ourselves, but like in planes and things uh, forever. And then the Wright brothers sort of figured it out somewhat out of nowhere. And then the, the you know, development from there was rapid. And now, and then, you know, I don't know what it was, 50 years later, 40 years later, something like that. 
we had a rocket and we went to the moon. So it's like, I, I think aging, once these initial progresses and, and signs of it working in humans are shown, we could have like similar progress. But when do you think that initial moment could come? And, and do you sort of agree with my perspective on, on once that comes, things really accelerating from there? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and specifically, I believe, I guess, that the very first time that the FDA approves a drug, which, you know, is an aging mechanism, um, it, that's going to be really, really meaningful for the field, right? So it could be one of our drugs or, or one of Unity's or, you know, all the other companies that will come to the clinic in the next few years. Like, I, I feel like that can be a, a really watershed moment for the field. Um, because right now, again, like there's just not a lot of resources or people or companies focused on the space. But, you know, once large pharma got involved, right, like once so once we have some successes, I think, and then I think that means clinical successes in humans, drug approvals, um, then I think that will dramatically accelerate the pace of uh, progress. So your, your system that you've developed, like we talked about, it's, it's very unique, very difficult, if at all possible, even to, to sort of replicate. Um, it's pointed at, my understanding is like the blood for the most part, that's sort of the whole driver of, of the business and everything. But um, in the future, could you see yourself taking this AI approach to um, sort of other avenues, like um, going through electronic health systems and, and analyzing data, not from the blood, but from like those health systems on people who have taken different drugs and experienced, you know, better aging processes and been healthier in old age and things like that, or, you know, going the genetics route, or are you sort of laser, laser focused on the blood in the near term? Well, in the near term, it's blood, but we're already looking for data-driven approaches broadly, right? So like, what can we learn from the human example? I think that's sort of like the broader the broader focus of the company, right? We want to, again, like, I think this is so important to look in humans, right? Because you might see that a pathway works awesome in worms, but then, you know, maybe there's some horrible side effects if you do that in a person that you just wouldn't notice in a worm. <laughs> and by studying people who are already living longer lives, um, you can, you can see, see people where they've had like that pathway induced for, you know, a hundred years and everything is fine, right? So I, I think it's incredibly de-risking to work with the human data. And there are a lot of other human data types that we would like to bring to bear over time, including, you know, as you mentioned, right, genetics, um, EHRs and real world data, et cetera. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the, the upside of working with humans is you sort of uh, have, have a much higher degree of, of certainty that it's going to work, whatever, whatever sort of data that you find. Um, but with animals, there's more, you know, you can test more freely and things like this and right. potentially yeah. find, yeah, potentially find these um innovations or, or technologies that are, are, you know, genetic modifications that could really move the needle more than maybe 10 or 20% sort of seeing the best of human examples and applying that to people who weren't so fortunate genetically or, or with, with their blood or, or whatever it might be. Um, do you sort of like, when I think about what, what you guys are doing with the human first approach, I, I think of that, that benefit that I sort of just, just touched on that you sort of have a high degree of confidence it's going to work. It's like the low hanging fruit, like you've said, um, but for me, like the, um, the, the devil's advocate would be like, okay, well, we haven't had at least not like observably had like a human who's lived to like 150, even, um, you know, we've had people live past their hundreds and be in good health. You mentioned like the doctor who was practicing, you know, well past the age of hundred, but even like the, the greatest outliers, there, there seems to be like a maximum. And so do you, do you think that we could sort of find things in humans that, we could then, you know, to, to me, I guess, seeing that that maximum 
implies that there's like almost nothing to be found in humans that could take us beyond that maximum. It could just take everyone closer and closer to it. But do you think that there's elements of like the aging process that we could sort of manipulate humans in a, obviously in a positive way, uh, just giving people, maybe it's like some factor in their blood that just by, by the nature of, of the way humans work, that we haven't even had a single outlier with like X amount of that in their blood that's been able to live to 150. But if you could do that, and theoretically you could do that, then they actually could live that long. Um, how do you think about all that type of, uh, you know, that, that perspective? Yeah, no, that's a, a really good question, right? And, and probably that's true. Probably just by studying, you know, healthier humans, successful aging in humans, that's not going to get you to like 200 plus, and you'd have to try and, you know, other methods to sort of, for extreme life extension. Um, so for example, right, I think you probably could learn from some of the really long lived mammals like bowhead whales, right, that live at least 250 years somehow, right, and, and bear a lot of similarities to humans. Um, so, so certainly, I mean, not, not certainly, right? Because it's, it's true, right, that people have just done a couple of different genetic interventions to a worm in, in the rest and left the rest of the genome alone and then, you know, gone as high as tenfold life extension, right? But, but, my, but my intuition in general is, is the same as yours, that probably this is more sort of going to add 20 years or so to healthy lifespan. So is it true, this, this is like a little bit uh, speculative, I suppose, but is it true that uh, maybe it's been observed in mice that like, if you extend, if you successfully extend the health span and the lifespan that, um, these mice or, or other animals that are pushed to live longer than they naturally might end up actually having like a shorter window of, of sort of suffering towards death as well, where, um, you know, on the one hand, if you extend someone's lifespan from 80 to 110, and they spend, like you mentioned that the average health span was closer to like 60. So they spent sort of 20 years uh, you know, somewhat dying. Um, and, and if they spend that same 20 years, but they're dying at 110, like proportionally, it's a much smaller percentage of their life. But is it true that that 20 years is actually like been seen to be lessened? And I don't know, maybe you don't know about this particular question, but I'm just curious to ask. Yeah, that's what's been observed so far by studying long lived people. It's, it's, you know, people call it compressed morbidity, but it's basically the same idea you said, right? People are living longer, but smell, spending a, a shorter proportion of their life being frail. And in a way, this isn't surprising, right? Like a lot of people, they're like, oh, you're going to make me live longer. That just means I'm going to be sick for longer. But it's actually really hard <laughs> to extend lifespan, to sort of extend sick lifespan, right? Like, like if you're incredibly frail, right, it, it's actually very hard to keep you alive. And in our cohorts, right, uh, physical function and mental function and long life, they all go together. Um, so, so yes, the compression of morbidity is, I think, something we can expect from these kinds of therapies. Right. So, and that's, that's encouraging, I think too, because it's like, you know, it's a lot of the main critics of like extending lifespan, just sort of assume, like you said, that you're going to spend a lot of time in this, this uh, unpleasant state of, uh, of suffering, but realistically it actually, not only can you live longer, but you can actually suffer for not only a proportionally smaller time, but like a, an absolutely smaller time. And it all adds up to a, a, a very attractive picture from my point of view. Um, but you still have these people who sort of um, don't want to, uh, you know, entertain the possibility that we could live longer and healthier lives. And I think a large part of that is because in the past it was a uh, sort of a hopeless dream. And um, if you sort of believed that, then you were sort of doomed to be disappointed. And that's like not really a, a pleasant experience. But now it's actually from my perspective of like the utmost importance that people realize that not only is this maybe possible, 
but something that's extremely desirable because if we don't sort of realize that we have less people working on it, less people excited about it. And, you know, not, not that it's like the biggest deal, but like recording podcasts about it and things like this. And then all of that in some sort of drives to uh, bringing talent to the industry, bringing funding to the industry. And, and theoretically, that's all sort of accelerating the progress of the industry. Um, I saw, and correct me if I'm wrong here too, but I think you had this background in, in philosophy as well. I'm curious from like more of a philosophical perspective, what you sort of say to these people who um, sort of refuse to believe that extending health span or, or lifespan is something that we want to um, strive for as humans. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in some ways you can point and say, hey, the average lifespan is extended by several decades in the past hundred years, right? Which is mostly true due to things like clean water, et cetera, right? But, but there have been like large societal shifts in average, an average lifespan. And, and as a society, we've dealt with it, right? Like it's, it's okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I feel like, you know, I, I think a large part of the problem is that people, when people think of living longer, they, they still, they still identify that with being ill for longer, right? Sort of being like 80 years old, but like for a few decades. And it's, it's more, I think, important to, to, to communicate the idea that these therapies ultimately are going to prevent, are going to delay disease um, and extend functional life. Um, and, and I think when you communicate it that way, there's actually a, a lot more enthusiasm. And I, you know, it's funny, I've been in this field now for a while and it, there's been a real acceleration in the last 10 years in the terms of people working on it, in terms of the good science being done um, in different areas. And, and also I think in terms of public perception and it's true that it's still early days and, and we have a lot of progress to make, but it's a, you know, we're on a good trajectory. Yeah, and I think good is, is maybe an understatement. Your, uh, your company, at least from like a funding perspective, I know you've raised over, I think about $127 million and most recently, uh, $90 million series C round, which included a, uh, a previous guest on the podcast, Elad Gill, who I know has been interested in the space for a while, as well as uh, A16Z. Um, so, you know, what do, what do they see for your company that, and not they, you know, being like the broader group of investors see from your company that sort of gives them hope in, in this, what's really a, a very large investment that uh, I think is flying like somewhat under the radar. Uh, you're seeing this for like software businesses, of course, which have proven to work if they have sort of certain metrics early on over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades. But aging companies, I don't think are regularly bringing in this type of funding. Uh, what do these investors see for the future of, uh, of BioAge that is so encouraging? And how do they expect that investment to sort of pay it, pay it back over time? Yeah, so I think there's really this feeling now that the science of aging is ready for translation, that we know actually a lot of things that, that are you know ripe for translation in the clinic, that it's time to start making clinical bets. Um, and frankly, the more the better, because <laughs> uh, you can always be surprised in the clinic. Um, and, and at BioAge, really, right, we're taking this human-first approach, and we're also taking this portfolio approach. We want to bet on many different mechanisms over time um, that could eventually complement each other, right, and that all can extend, ultimately, the period of healthy and productive life, and that's that's the really long-term vision. Great, yeah, and it's, a, uh, it's definitely a, a positive vision that I, I hope comes to fruition. Um, closing out here, I know we just have a few minutes left, but... Uh, before I ask you sort of where people can go and, and follow along, one other question I have is, you know, people listening to this podcast, hopefully a, a decent number of them are start of uh, increasingly becoming interested in, in aging and um, may be sort of interested in, in contributing however they might be able to. Are, are there certain people or uh, 
you know, skills that that BioAge could be looking for uh, either now or, or in sort of the near term future to help you guys, you know, accelerate along this path? Uh, great question. We're actually hiring for a whole bunch of roles right now for people with computational backgrounds, um, aging biology backgrounds, uh, clinical backgrounds, and I'm probably forgetting a couple. <laughs> so those are all on our website um, at bioagelabs.com, uh, as well as on LinkedIn. Uh, BioAge also has a, a Twitter account. Awesome. Well, uh, hopefully there's there's some interest uh, from the audience there and maybe someone gets hired and that would be a really cool thing for me personally to see. But uh, Kristen, it's been awesome talking with you today. I really appreciate you taking the time again and uh, you know, can't emphasize enough how much I applaud the work. And like you said, I think, uh, I mean, I personally couldn't imagine a, a more important place to be working than sort of in the, in the field of longevity and ex- extending health span and lifespan. So uh, really cool to see and really excited to see uh, how these early clinical trials go and how the company develops moving forward. Um, in closing, where, where can people go and sort of follow this journey and follow you as, as you sort of uh, move along? Um, yeah, so uh, there's a media section on uh, BioAge's website where we have some regular updates. We've got a, a Twitter account too, BioAge Labs. Uh, I also have a personal Twitter account and uh, we'll be posting stuff there uh, as new developments happen. Uh, so thanks a ton for having me. It was fun. Mm-hmm.